Hello, uh, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Thanks for listening to the fifth episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Lewis DeFreitz. I'm a PhD student here at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge, and today I'm pleased and personally very excited to be talking to Corey Robin, a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and at the Sunny Center, uh, Graduate Centre. Corey has worked on an unspeakably broad range of topics relating to political culture, theory and practice, from writing on Hannah Arendt and the Eichmann trial, to most recently in an article in Jacobin, Originalism and the Undemocratic Character of the Supreme Court. He's an active blogger and writer for both his own site and for several online publications, including Jacobin, The Nation and the London Review of Books. His first book, uh, Fear, The History of a Political Idea, was published by Oxford University Press in 2006, and trace the fear of, uh, history of fear in political and intellectual life as a catalyst for change and as an instrument of repression. His second book, uh, The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin, was also published by OUP in 2011 and looks at the history of conservative thought from the French Revolution to today, arguing that the right of all stripes are united by a shared defence of inequality, privilege and a diametric opposition to progressive politics. That book was revised, updated and republished last year, swapping Palin for Donald Trump in the book subtitle and including a discussion of the current Commander-in-Chief, who Corey situates pretty clearly in this tradition. It's uh, provocative, insightful and well worth a read in my opinion. Corey, thanks very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, I'm happy to be here. Great, so we're going to talk a little bit about your paper, a bit about uh, the broader project and your other experiences and research. So the paper you're giving to Cambridge American History Seminar uh, in a joint session with Political Thought and Intellectual History today. So the paper's titled Invisible Man, The Black Nationalism of Clarence Thomas. It's a pre-circulated paper, so I've had a chance to read it already, but could you give a rough synopsis for listeners of the podcast? Yeah, this is uh, from a new book project that I'm working on, and hopefully finishing soon, on the jurisprudence of Clarence Thomas. And uh, not many people realize this, but that Thomas had an extended engagement with black nationalism when he was younger. Um, black nationalism broadly construed, so black power uh, and and some and the Black Panthers. Um, and the argument of the book is that um, that engagement continues while he's been on the court. So despite his right right turn, uh, he remains indebted in many ways to that black nationalist tradition. So the paper today looks at some of the earlier engagements with black nationalism and then how we see that on the court today, in particular in his opinions on affirmative action. Okay. And how would you say that that engagement with black nationalism earlier in his life, how has that influenced his opinions? Yeah. So, I mean, I think broadly um, what what he retained from those earlier days is a a fairly deep uh, and profound racial pessimism, what sometimes gets called Afro-pessimism. Uh, a belief that racism is not only pervasive throughout American society, but that it is enduring and, and is probably ineradicable. Uh, people don't really people tend to construe Thomas as a colorblind uh, constitutionalist, and that really doesn't get at what um, sort of that deep vein of Afro pessimism. And then that gives rise both to a profound suspicion of the state as being an inherently white institution on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, a, an appreciation on his part of the market as a s- possible sphere of black flourishing. Mm-hmm. And so in the paper, for those who haven't read it, uh, you talk quite um, quite extent- like extensively about how this has influenced his opinions on affirmative action sure. in particular. 
Could you talk maybe more about that? Sure. So um, many people misread Thomas as just a standard conservative on affirmative action, that he's opposed to affirmative action, allegedly, because um, it violates these principles of color blindness and individualism, or that it creates victims of white people in the same way that race consciousness once created victims of black people. That is not Thomas's position, and it's really important that we clear the, uh, the, the underbrush of that, of that right. notion. Um, his position is that affirmative action is in many ways a literal continuation of white supremacy under Jim Crow. Um, that in particular what it does is to perpetuate the uh, stigma of black inferiority on the one hand. So it's, it, it doesn't create that stigma, it perpetuates that stigma, which is also important to emphasize on the one hand. But secondly, and I think almost more important, is that he really sees this as a project of a white ruling class, a form of paternalism that is designed uh, to sort of keep uh, black people in, a, in an inferior position in society. And so he sees, essentially he sees affirmative action as, um, uh, like I said, a, a literal continuation of white supremacy. Right, okay. And that's something that I found really interesting. You spoke that he's quite unique uh, on, from the conservative side of uh, things talking about, like he centers white people's benefiting from affirmative action. Right. And would you say that that, that like bolsters conservative arguments against con affirmative action more generally? I don't think so. I mean, I think his argument is wrong. I mm -hmm. think um, he radically um, overlooks the role of black agency in creating these programs of affirmative action. Um, but I think the, the challenge for the left is, in order to counter him, you have to have a much more robust notion of black agency and of the possibilities of the transformative possibilities of the American state. Um, I think there are an awful lot of people on the left who don't believe that. Uh, and so therefore, if you don't believe that, I think then his conclusions seem more persuasive and compelling. Sure. And that's something that struck me through the paper. Um, was, so. A lot of his arguments, I guess on some level, do make sense about like white liberals, for instance, like how they benefit from affirmative action and it's sort of a veneer and that structural, like that structural inequality uh, remains. So one of the things I was interested in was, would you say that his earlier experiences with black nationalism led him um, to this political shift or is it merely that his views that he held earlier in life remain compatible with his actions on the Supreme Court and his approach to things like affirmative action? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I mean, I don't do this in the paper, but I do this in the book. People forget. Um, but black nationalism and black power were really undergoing very um, severe internal transformations in the early 1970s mm. um, in the face of the defeats of the civil rights, you know, just the broader freedom struggle. Um, black power and black nationalism were really winnowed down quite a bit so that at the local level in particular, and there's been some great historical scholarship on this, uh, black, uh, black power activists really started engaging with questions of black capitalism and trying to find an alternative path through capitalism. In other words, particularly on the left, we tend to focus on the, on the Marxist dimensions of black power and, and the black left, mm -hmm. but there was a, a real engagement with capitalism. And so I think uh, to some degree, uh, Thomas's right turn, which begins around 1975, I mean, people disagree a bit about this, but um, was in many ways organically connected to where he had come to on the left, this sympathy or appreciation for capitalism on the one hand, or black capitalism, 
And then on the other hand, this critique of the white state and this view that white people dominated the state and that whatever the state did, it was just liberal paternalism and liberal largesse handed down. Um, so I think both of those principles um, undergird his right turn and then are in, just intensified and formalized. I mean, Thomas is a, an extraordinarily ideological pers person. Ideological people need to, um, you know, reconcile principles, you know, with, you know and, and create coherence there. Yeah. And so he follows those principles to their logical conclusions. Right, okay. So one of the things that comes across in this paper and in your wider work, especially in the reactionary mind, is this idea of loss. And you talk about it quite explicitly here, but it's also evident in a lot of your other work. Could you talk more about that as a concept in your broader thinking and writing and how it relates to Thomas in particular? Sure. So in my, you know, in my broader writing, I, I've always felt that the left did not have a sufficient appreciation for the, the, for the centrality of loss to the conservative movement and to the right more generally. Um, in part because I think, particularly at the moment like, that we're, we've been in for an extended period of time, the left forgets that its project, the left's project, has always been overwhelmingly a project of dispossession. That is to say, it's been about taking away power and privilege and resources, uh, both material and cultural, from ruling classes. So if that's true, yeah. then it means that the people defending those ruling classes, which is what the rights project is, are going to be concerned with that loss. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that loss is very minuscule, and sometimes, as in the case of something like abolition and, and, and emancipation, it's been maximal. Right. Um, and the ex that experience um, really just structures the rights entire project, which is a project of restoration, not in a temporal sense. I don't think the right is about going backward. I think that's the wrong way of looking at it, but it is very much a project of restoration in a material sense. Um, and Thomas, um, you know, figures in this, in, I mean, I don't talk really about this that much in the paper, but in the last third of the book, uh, I really do believe that Thomas's ultimate project is a project of recreating Jim Crow, mm -hmm. uh, not because he's a fan of Jim Crow and not because he believes in white supremacy, but because he believes that under those conditions of Jim Crow, you saw the greatest flourishing and overcoming of the African-American community, particularly of African-American men. Uh, and so I think he's very much in keeping with, with that sort of restorationist project. Mm -hmm. So you spoke about there about how you touch on this more in the final third of your book. Could you talk about how this paper fits in within a broader research project and then perhaps how it relates to like your previous writing and publication? Um, I mean, in many ways, I would say this whole project is a bit of a departure for me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, although I talk quite a bit about race in the reactionary mind and the role that it plays, um, it's not been, you know, African-American history is not really an area of expertise or concentration um, uh, and nor is African-American political thought. So that alone um, is, is a bit of a departure for me. Um, but what I was intrigued by when I, and I came upon this project by accident um, but what immediately intrigued me um, the second I started looking into it was the way this um, uh, this guy was, you know, just far more complicated um, mm. than people realized. And, you know, there's a lot of um, mythology around Thomas that he's not a particularly intelligent man, uh, that he's not a real intellect and all this kind of stuff. And um, that's what people have always said on the left about the right more generally. Uh, we tend to say that less now. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in, the, in that sense, it's in keeping with my desire to kind of excavate 
deeper levels of mind than I think most people believe uh, exist on the right. And in particular, this kind of mind um, that traffics so much with the left. And I, I should say that's a, another continuity is that part of my argument about the right has always been that it bar it's parasitic on the left mm -hmm. and borrows from the left, that it's very syncretic with left ideas. And I think you see a lot of that in Thomas. Okay. Uh, yeah, that makes sense, I suppose. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess um, we'll move on a bit more generally. Uh, what's a book or article that you've read in the last 12 months uh, that's got you excited either about the state of the field or about perhaps your own research and your relation to it? Um, well, in terms of my research, I mean, I, one book that I did read earlier this summer, or maybe in the late spring, um, that I loved was James Foreman Jr.'s Locking Up Our Own. Uh, okay. He is James, He's the son of James Foreman, who was a big civil rights activist, but James Foreman Jr. Um, is now a professor at the Yale Law School, and this is a book about the project. It's, it's, a, it's located in, in Washington, D.C., but it has a, it's a national story as well, about how the African-American community in D.C. inadvertently helped build the carceral state. Okay. Um, there was a big battle that he begins in the 1970s in D.C., um, initially to decriminalize drugs, marijuana, I think it was. Yeah. And it was um, a lot of black power, black nationalist activists who, re who resisted this. It was, it was initiated by white liberals and it was resisted by um, sort of the, the leadership of the black community in D.C which was reeling from a heroin epidemic. I mean, it's a complicated story. Mm -hmm. But the long and the short of it, and what makes this such a powerful and, and, and tragic book, is that um, people with the best of intentions acting under very serious constraints, that is sort of the black leadership in D.C., inadvertently built this prison um, yeah. for African America. Um, and what's especially powerful in Foreman's telling, and I, I use the word tragic, and I mean it in the, sort of the ancient Greek sense, it's that you get the sense that despite the fact that all of them make, are making these very contingent decisions at the time where you could have gone multiple ways, there's something faded about the whole thing because the larger national political environment mm -hmm. is collapsing around them. You know, yeah. they had really hoped that they were gonna do a kind of Marshall Project, yeah. New Deal, you know, urban New Deal, but also deal with this crime and drug problem. Mm -hmm. What did they get? They got the crime and the drug problem um, and none of the New Deal parts of it. Sure. And um, there's just, it's, it's, you just read this with this mounting sense of dread because you know what the ending is of this whole story. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and, and yet there are these people with a tremendous amount of vision and talent and um, political leadership just, uh, you know, both the world is closing in on them and they're helping that world close in on them inadvertently. And that's the power of that book. So I, I thought it was just yeah. fantastic, one of the best books I've read this year. Right, okay. And so I should say, I've not read that book, but I have heard an interview with uh, Foreman with uh, the Diggs podcast. With Daniel oh. Over, and he, yeah, he conveys that sense of tragedy like really effectively. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just beautifully, it's just a horrific, horrific, I mean, it just, it, and I should say one other thing about it, you know, Particularly, I think, um, in, during the 2016 campaign when Clinton, Hillary Clinton's past on the questions of crime and punishment came up, you know, there was a lot of discussion of the crime bill in the 1990s and so forth. But we forget, I think we really forget, and I, and I include myself in this, the extent to which the kind of conservative reaction and the backlash and the world we live in today was constructed by um, both a liberalism and a left in retreat. 
yeah. uh, and the way that world looked to people back then. You know, Thomas's positions on, um, in fact, on crime and punishment in particular, uh, but there's many of them, are very much in sync with what a lot of leading black leaders were saying. And it wasn't just these black nationalists and black power activists in D.C. You had people like Coleman Young in Detroit and elsewhere, black mayors, um, uh, you know, making very similar kinds of arguments. And that world has now been overshadowed and forgotten, and we, you know, think it was the right that constructed yeah. all of this. But you know, the left had a hand in it. Yeah, it's easy to figure out yeah. that involvement. Right. So the next question that I ask most people is, uh, what's the most interesting place that you've been to conduct research? But I'd also ask, like to ask you about who's the most interesting person you've interviewed as part uh, of work. So. Um, you know, what's interesting about this project is I didn't have to go anywhere to conduct okay. research. Um, uh, even though I've kind of resurrected this past, this was actually a past that was known at one time because it was reported in the media throughout mm -hmm. the 1980s and up until the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. But then it got completely eclipsed by the Anita Hill story. Course, People, yeah. And so it, it was totally, totally forgotten. Um, so on the one hand, there's a kind of element of uh, excavation and resurrection going on here. But on the other hand, it doesn't require the kind of ar deep archival work that you historians do, uh, where you're traveling to all over the place. So I actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm by training a political theorist, which means most of my work is just uh, reading in, you know, and at home or my office. Um, but in terms of uh, meeting people, you know, I, the reason I began writing about the right was in 2000, I did a, a, a profile for this magazine, Lingua Franca, that no longer exists. And I ended up interviewing uh, William F. Buckley, um, Irving Kristol, and Norman Pithoritz. And I would say, Certainly the first two um, were amongst, I mean, I haven't interviewed that many people, so it's an N of, you know, <laughs> the top two out of two or top two <laughs> out of three. But um, I was struck in those interviews. Um, one of the things, and it, it's what got me interested in the right, was how romantic um, their mm -hmm. conception of the world is and how dissatisfied in many ways they were with the post-Cold War market order um, and... Um, so, yeah, I'd say those were, you know, two key kind of moments for me. Right, okay. So, and just to finish it out, as we always do, uh, what's your favorite album of all time? Yeah, I, I have to say I was dreading this question mm -hmm. because it feels like this is the moment where the, uh, you know, one's middle age gets exposed. <laughs> um, you know, because I, I don't think I really have a favorite album. Okay. I mean, there were mo different moments in my life when I listened to a lot of things. So right now, I'll just say... Um, I, I'm writing intensively, and I really listen to music uh, when I do, but it's all classical music. But um, uh, Simon Rattle has a recording of a lot of early Schoenberg. Um, it's, a, it's an album, I think it's called The Second Viennese School or something like that. But anyway, there's these recordings, beautiful recordings. Most of them he did when he was with the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, right. or Birmingham, however you pronounce it. <laughs> Birmingham. Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham. Um, and it's just, uh, it's early Schoenberg it's, and kind of late, it's, it's sort of late romantic. And I would say that's um, sort of top on my, on my exactly. list right now. Fantastic. Right. Well, Corey Robin, thank you very much for talking to me. I'm really looking forward to the discussion later on and to reading the book when it comes out. Thank you very much. I enjoyed yeah, this. Thanks for joining me. Cheers.